All episodes of the Garage Build podcast are recorded live in the Law Fran studios. The law offices of Fran Hosh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Call 1-866-LAW-FRAN or go to lawfran.com. The law offices of Fran Hosh, serving the Tampa Bay biker community for over 20 years. Welcome back to the Garage Built Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hallman. Hey, I've got a fantastic episode for you tonight. Episode 104 with Rodney and Melissa Shrum from Revolution Performance in Wisconsin. Met them on the High Seas Rally. Fantastic folks. I can't wait for you to meet them. Hey, this episode of the Garageville Podcast is brought to you by SNS Cycles. Since 1958, SNS has led the V Twin aftermarket from innovative new ways to get air and fuel into your performance twin to big board kits for all big twins, sportsers, MAs, to today's must have exhaust components. Choose SNS Cycles for your next performance upgrade. Visit sscycle.com and follow SNS Cycles on social media at SS Cycle. Team Dream Rides in Maryville, Tennessee is located only minutes from the tail of the dragon. Team Dream Rides specializes in performance engine upgrades, used bike sales, service, maintenance, and repair. Visit TeamDreamRides.com. Follow at Dream Rides Tennessee on Instagram to keep up with all the latest news. The High Seas Rally in 2023 is going to set sail next November from Tampa, Florida. It is the only motorcycle rally on a cruise ship. Join me and all my friends as we sail the high seas for a seven-day cruise. Follow at High Seas Rally on Instagram to find out all of the latest information or go to highseasrally.com. 1620 Workwear is premium made in the USA workwear, guaranteed for life. Visit 1620USA.com and use the discount code SPEED2022 to save 20% at checkout and follow at 1620USA. Garage Bill Podcast listeners are the only ones in the country that get 20% off their purchase at 1620. Very excited about this episode. Melissa and Rodney Shrum are from Revolution Performance, part of the Millennium Technologies family of companies. Met them on the High Seas Rally. We had an amazing time. I'm super excited for you to meet them telling us all about the last 20 years in the business for them and how they ended up moving from Indianapolis up to Wisconsin. You're listening to the Garageville Podcast with your host, Jason Coleman. Jason, what's up, buddy? Bubba, what's going on? Nothing at all. Just uh, waiting for your call. <laughs> right on. The middle of the week, right? We're at Wednesday. It's the hump day. Yeah. <sighs> good day. We got a town tomorrow morning. Yeah, it was a good day. I leave out of town to Indianapolis tomorrow morning for the PRI show. Oh, you guys still do PRI? Yeah. Man, I miss that show being in Orlando. I loved having that show in Orlando. Yeah. So it's down in Indy now, which that's my hometown. So it's good to be able to go back and be familiar with everything going on down there. Oh, you guys are actually from Indy? Yeah. 
I didn't know that. I thought I thought you guys were based in what I I know you're based in Wisconsin now, but I thought that's where you guys were based originally. Yeah, I mean, we've all the company's always been based in Wisconsin, right? Melissa and I came from Indianapolis. That's where we were from. Okay, so we I, moved up here. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, Revolution Performance is, is what part of Wisconsin is it in? Plymouth. So Plymouth is in Sheboygan County, and we are about due north of Milwaukee, about forty-five miles. Oh, not bad at all. Okay, so you're you're still almost greater. Milwaukee, but you're just outside of that. Correct. Very good. It's a nice part of the country. I mean, it, people in Milwaukee or people in Wisconsin in general are fantastic people. I've, I've dealt with uh, lots of people up there. I mean, obviously, uh, SNS is up that way. Uh, Advanced Cycle Machine is up that way. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a good part of the country. It's a part of the country I think that most people, if they haven't visited there, they're missing out. I, there's some really, really, really nice people there. Yeah, um, you know this this county has been a little bit different. It's just odd, man. Um, it's really deep Holland, deep Germany people. You know what I mean? And it's very, I would say, family oriented. But if you're not in that family, they don't like accept you in. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's it's lots of places odd. that are like that, right? Yeah, odd friendships here. You know what I mean? Sure. How long so, you guys been up there now? A little over six years. Okay. I didn't realize that you guys had been up there that long as well. I know. I can't believe it either. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone way faster than I thought it would. Yeah, everything goes way faster anymore. You know what I mean? If that happens, the older we get, man, it's just, I guess somebody explained it once, you know, a kid, seems like when you're a young kid, time goes so slow, but you don't have that much experience in life and, and time and days and all that stuff. And the older you get, the more common it becomes to you and the faster it seems to go by. Absolutely. I can remember being a kid and this time of year, especially, you know, once Thanksgiving happened and I grew up in Detroit. So very similar, um, very similar to Indianapolis, very similar to the weather that you guys have in the area that you're in now. But it seemed like as soon as Thanksgiving was over, you went to school for a couple of weeks and then all the Christmas stuff started happening. And it seemed like it took forever to get there. And now as an adult, it seems like, you know, Christmas is in like another three weeks. And I'm like, yeah, for Christ's sake, I needed to slow down so that I can get caught back up. I feel the exact same way. We, uh, yeah, I mean, it's this weekend's basically shot the weekend after that. Um, next week I have shoulder surgery. So, I'm, you know, next weekend I'm down. Um, yeah. And before I know it, then it's Christmas, you know? Yep. Yep. I'm trying to figure out how the hell I'm going to get all my shopping done. You know, Amazon, <laughs> use your phone. You'll be able to, you'll, you'll have one good arm that you can still type with once you go through your shoulder, uh, shoulder surgery. I know, man, but it's just not the same. You know? it, it is I not. Hate, I hate doing that, you know? I do. It, it's. Like, I feel like everything is. Uh, when we get into the, the the digital age of everything, there's like there's this digital component that happens with everything that we try to do now. It's like when you try to call customer service and you just want to talk to somebody and explain to them what's going on. You almost you almost look forward to the to the problem you're going to have if you know that the problem that you're going to have is going to be solved by a human, so that you can just talk to somebody. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. It's so weird. I just, I don't know. I still like going and shopping. It sounds stupid because it's, I never thought I'd say this. I actually like going to the store and 
picking up things and trying them on or looking at them to know that, oh, this is going to work perfectly for this person. It's hard for me to do the same online. I it, just, I think it's our age group. It's, yeah. it's not like I won't accept it, but it's just not what I prefer. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I find more and more, more often than not, you know, um, and obviously since, you know, our businesses are, are, are we have so many more opportunities as business owners to have customers that aren't in our immediate circles and not in our immediate areas that can't pick up our items and, and try them on per se, you know, using a metaphor, so to speak, but that they, so there's an advantage there, right? You have customers that don't live in your area, but at the same time, there's something lost on most people. You know, I, even if it's something as simple as going to Best Buy, I don't have a Best Buy by me. I mean, it's a 30 minute drive to get to a Best Buy where I live. So it's like, if I need a USB port or uh, an SD card or something like that, I'm I'm having to either buy something that, I, that doesn't do exactly what I want it to do from a store that is closer to me, or I have to like plan my journey to go. It's like, you know, Frodo Baggins going to, to take the ring to Mordor here to try to get a, a goddamn <laughs> SD card or something locally, you know what I mean? I do, yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, you know, same with us. I mean, it's 20 minutes, you know, to go to Best Buy and it's, you know, it's across the county. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds stupid, but Melissa and I plan our weekend, you know, one of our weekend days is typically going over that way and doing all of our shopping at once and then coming back, you know, and it's not that far. It's 15, 20 miles, but at the same time, it's not like, you know, we're used to being close to everything, you know? Yeah. When you, and when you it's move not that way. When you move out of the area that you're accustomed to, that you grow up in, and that you're, you know, where everything's at, and then you move, and, and we did this in 2010 when Karen and I moved down here to Florida. I didn't know where to get a good hamburger. I didn't know where to get a good piece of pizza. I didn't know where to go buy metal so that I could fabricate. I didn't know, I didn't have a machinist that I could rely upon. So all these things, I didn't have a powder coater, I didn't have a painter, and it takes a while to develop all of these relationships and all of these resources that we're so accustomed to. Cause you guys ran your own, you know, so I'm talking with Rodney Shrum from Revolution Performance up in Wisconsin, but prior to that, you ran a very successful family run motorcycle shop with your wife, Melissa, um, in the Indianapolis area, and that's how you became acquainted with, with Revolution. But so you understand what I'm talking about, what how important resources are in your local area. Correct. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, being up here for now six years, just trying to, you know, in the beginning, hey, who do you call for plumbing? And everybody would look at me like, uh, like, I don't know. And I'm like, you guys have lived here all your life. How do you not know the plumber? You know, we're in a right. town of 8,900 people. How do you not know the electrician? How do you not know a roofer? I mean, all the basic things in life that you think that are just so common to you because you grew up around them, and it seemed like nobody knew anyone. So now we're finally getting our own network up here. You know, like you said, we know the the right guy to go to for a, uh, you know machining or if we got a special tool that needs to be made. Um, you know what I mean? We have those shops around us, and we didn't even know it. When you were in, when you were in Indianapolis, that was a very um, a lot of people don't understand that uh, you know obviously you know as a company if you go back to if you go back sixty years from now to 1962 right which uh, for guys like you and me that's only a few that's it's less than a decade before you and I were born um, 
62 sound doesn't sound like that long ago, but it was it was such a long time ago now for for what we're talking about today. But Detroit was a very big motor. Uh, you know, the motor car companies were based there and you had Flint. You had uh, a lot of business in Indianapolis and in Muncie. And you had all of these cottage industries that sprung up around the automotive industry in the Midwest there in that rust belt. And that stuff started to kind of peel away as you and I grew up and, and got older and the small job shops went away. Uh, we became accustomed to having resources when we were teenagers, when we started driving and getting into hot rods. And I'm sure you were kind of into that as well. You, you knew a machinist by the time you were 15 or 16 to get cylinder heads done and, and your blackboard and all those things that I just don't see 16, 17 and 18 year old kids today having an interest in that. And I don't see there being those resources anymore. Is, is that something that kind of like baffles you a little bit? It does. I mean, there's, there's still shops around. It's just, they're hard to find. And the funny thing is you said that, you know, I mean, I had a hot rod that I was building when I was 15 and 16. And one of the shops that I used is still around today. And that's who I use at our motorcycle shop. So, and, but, you know, now it's a father, son, the father is teaching the son. He's, you know, continuing to do that old school, you know, boring, honing head work, you know, just basic stuff, you know? Right. And even one of my buddies, he was a crank guy. So he built and remanned cranks for cars and, and, um, you know, crank grinding. And now trying to find a crank grinder for a car crank is like, it's impossible. Good luck. Well, you, you know, you had, you had Eagle cranks came across from, from China and scat cranks came across from China for the guys that were high performance engine guys back 20, 30 years ago with, you know, when the 302 really took off the five liter Mustang and the small block Chevy was really, you know, the small block Chevy is, is kind of the, that's the go-to when, when we were kids uh, coming up, you had a small block or a big block Chevy, no one raised the big Fords and, and the small Fords, it was kind of, kind of a, just a non-issue, right? And then you have all these companies that come in, but you know, Moldex Cranks was somebody that was world renowned for building crankshafts. They were right down the street from where I grew up. And you're right. You had guys that knew how to, you know, grind a crank 10, 10, 20, 20, or you'd have a crank that was 10, 20, depending on what it was. And, you know, you'd go to the junkyard, you could still find an old motor with an eight inch harmonic dampener on it. And you knew it had a steel crank and four bolt mains and all that shit. Right now it's non-existent. It's all throwaway. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the cool thing about our shop, one thing that, you know, amazes me is all the resources that we have within our own shop, you know, the CNC machine shop and, you know, even the revolution shop, you know, doing cranks and bottom ends and all that, everything that we do, um, when a customer sends in even the worst torn up thing that you can imagine, we can fix anything pretty much in house and it never has to leave our place. Um, and there's not many shops like that around anymore. It's not just plating that we do. It's not just, you know, bottom ends that we do. Um, we do all of it. You know, we do heads for all kinds of different companies. Anything that's four stroke head, we do it. Um, you know, from a small, you know, 450F Honda to, you know, racing heads that we have companies that send us in racing heads and we duplicated their porting package for them. And then we report everything for them and they've, get them back and install them and go racing, you know? So it's, it's a lot bigger operation than most people think. And I guess, you know, from the outside looking in, you think, Oh, I talked to one person and that's the guy he's, he's in there doing it all. I mean, but you know, overall for our whole company, we've got 85 to 90 people that work there. So it's, 
it's a big operation, you know? Yeah. Revolution performance is part of millennium technologies and millennium technologies is very well, they're world renowned for a lot of the technology that they bring to the marketplace. They're, they, they were one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer, one of the pioneers of actually making it work well, the Nicosil treatment on the cylinders, right? So there's lots of proprietary things that you guys do in inside. Why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, before we get into kind of the, the backstory and the history of how you, you came up in the motorcycle industry, let's talk a little bit about Millennium Technologies from, from a thousand feet away and things that people don't know. Because when I met you and Melissa and Sergis two years ago, I just naturally assumed, I thought that Millennium Technologies was involved with Revolution, but I, I really, you guys represent the brand so well, and you, you guys have kind of this ownership of 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 the uh, the business mantra and how you present yourselves incredibly professionally that I just thought it was your business that was kind of under a corporate umbrella somehow. Can you can you kind of break that down for us and tell us a little bit about Millennial Tech, Millennium Technologies that people don't know? Okay. Well, Millennium started 25 years ago and the way that it started, um, our owner, Chris Hackle and his father were working at us Chrome and his father was an engineer and he decided to go out on his own, but he felt that there was a better way instead of Chrome plating a cylinder, he was wanting to mess around with different compounds. So he came up with this compound with nickel, silicon and carbide, which was a way different process than the Chrome plating. Um, but it was also harder. It was more durable. And it, it was the only thing that um, there actually at the time, there was no one else that even did that. And there still isn't. Um, so they were pretty much just repairing things that were damaged. So if the snowmobile cylinder came in, they were stripping off the old plating, um, fixing the cylinder and then plating it back to uh, stock size and fit a piston. So, you know, going forward now, we've pretty much broken into, all different industries, whether it's, you know, we do some, um, V8 stuff. We do, you know, all kinds of different car blocks. I mean, you'll see Lamborghini stuff in there. I'll see Ferrari stuff, Porsche, Mercedes, um, all different kinds of car stuff, all different kinds of motorcycles, snowmobiles, UTVs, ATVs, watercraft. I mean, anything that you can imagine that has a steel, uh, not a steel sleeve cylinder, but an all aluminum cylinder and it's plated we repair those things. So <clears throat> the way that revolution came about, they were working with um, Buell at the time when Buell first started racing and they wanted to make a cylinder that made more power and didn't distort and just would race better. And one of the engineers that was working with Eric Buell started working with us and developed a cylinder pattern and did a lot of testing. And then they plated it and all that stuff. And they, that went on for about seven years. And of course, Eric Buell was tied up with Harley at the time. And from my understanding, um, when they were done with that race program, Harley says, well, we're not going to use the plating. And Buell didn't want to use it either because it was just too expensive in a production setting. And they said, well, you can do whatever you want to with the cylinders. And, and that's that. So the owner at the time, you know, Chris, he decided to start Revolution Performance. And that was the branded side for the V-twin market for Millennium Technologies. So, you know, going from that, we just started making big bore kits and trying to stretch out the capabilities of a stock case bore and making the biggest cylinder that we could. Um, and at the time, it really surpassed everything that was being made with steel and 
cast iron plate, you know, cast iron cylinders that were aluminum cast on the outside that steel sleeve insides. Right. Um, yes. No, this is perfect. Yep. And and I can do all of this in post editing so we can bring this in. But I wanted to bring I, I, I wanted to have Melissa in on the conversation anyways, because I have lots of questions about business, um, you know, because we've started a new uh, a, a new series of podcasts underneath the garage built podcast um, brand that uh, with John Jessup and I where we're actually going to peel back kind of the layers of the onion that are the motorcycle shop and kind of introduce the independent motorcycle industry from the inside out. So we were talking, what I'm talking to Rodney about was about how the, the development or the, or the arc of how revolution performance kind of came about and in how they introduced the technology because it's such an interesting technology and I have lots of questions about it. So you want to give us kind of a, Melissa, you want to give us kind of a rundown of the actual like metallurgical, the, the proper terminology for, for how this thing, how this thing happened, because it's a very different way of doing things than just boring a cylinder or, or putting a liner in uh, using nitrogen and, and green Loctite. So, um, in 1999, um, Eric Buell Racing um, wanted to create a cylinder that ran cooler and created more power. Uh, one of the engineers for Harley-Davidson uh, raced snowmobile engines and decided to take his knowledge of plated snowmobile cylinders and incorporated and tried to make an all-aluminum plated Harley-Davidson cylinder. So... He cast the first all-aluminum cylinders. Uh, Millennium Technologies plated them for him. They did 100 in the first run. And when Eric Buell Racing ended and Buell ended with Harley-Davidson, um, they didn't want the technology any longer and told Millennium Technologies, do with it what you want. From there, um, the owner brought in a Harley-Davidson expert to help develop and design more big bore kits. So our first original big bore kits were made for the Buell and Sportster engines. And then from there it grew to Evo, Twin Cam, and now M8. So I used um, one of the, I used one of the early 1250 kits about 10 years ago. I did a, a, a Buell for a guy that came into the shop. He said he wanted to have absolutely the, the rowdiest and the fastest Buell on the planet. And so we, we built them what, I mean, for me was at that time was probably the highest horsepower engine I had ever built. And it ran fantastic. It had the, uh, a, um, a revolution 1250 kit. And I had a company that's not in business anymore. NHRS, uh, do a stage three cylinder head on it. We converted it from EFI to carburetor because we couldn't find a way to tune that early, uh, Buell system. But those types of things. I mean, that thing was absolutely rowdy as can be. And it still is. It's still a great big bore kit. It wakes up any 883 or 1200. Um, the Buell guys are still using it. Uh, the Sportster guys use it. Um, bolting it on takes an 883 from 58 horsepower to 80 horsepower with no head work. Right. You know, so add, you know, 25 horse to a little Sportster 883. It's awesome. Um, we do have a head package for it, um, which does help. But oftentimes you just need to wake it up and just, jump, you know, installing the big bore kit. And it also allows those Sportsters, which we all know, run extremely hot. Sure. To drop anywhere from, 
from 30 to 60 degrees because of the cooling um, properties of our cylinders, which are um, more porous than a cast iron sleeved cylinder. So there's more oil inside the cylinder, um, which um, allows for better lubrication, which dissipates heat. Plus, we are we when we created our cylinders, we thickened up the fins. Yeah, so there's I, more cooling cooling surface on the fins. I noticed that. I was going to mention that too because I have a, one of my personal engines has an 85 inch uh, Revolution Performance kit on. In the the cylinders, you know, if you didn't know any better, if someone didn't know any better, they wouldn't know what they were looking at, but when you have the two engines next to each other, you can definitely see there's more surface area on the fins. And when you have an air-cooled engine, obviously the more surface area, the more heat dissipation. I do have a couple of questions though from, um, the first question is about how is it that you can get a good ring package that will seal in a, what is essentially almost a polished cylinder surface when you're comparing it to an archaic design where you want a 30 degree cross hatch. Can you explain that a little bit so that people understand why Revolution Performance, why that stuff works so well? Um, well, there's several types of ring packs out there. Um, and we have to remember that you, we have to use the proper rings for nickel plating. And since Harley-Davidson is the only power sports company worldwide that does not use plated bore cylinders, um, ring packs uh, were developed more plated bore cylinders in the 60s by Mall, um, and um, I mean every Yamaha, Polaris, Suzuki, they've been using plated bore cylinders for 30 years. Um, so the ring technology is there. Uh, we don't like to use chrome-faced rings. Um, they, they tend to stuff the cylinders wear a little bit faster. Um, but yeah, the ring selection out there is, is very simple. Um, you have actually more rings to choose from for plated bore cylinders than you do for cast iron bore. Yeah, but the, the chrome is super hard, right? So there's no embeddability uh, built into that from a, from a metallurgical standpoint. Right. There's no embeddability. Correct. So it has to go somewhere. So it's going to go into the, it's going to go into the cylinder wall. It's going to cause uh, scuffing in that. So one of the, one so of actually, the things. Let me, let me, let me clarify that. So sure. <clears throat> when the ring, when rings wear on a plated bore cylinder, um, what happens is it doesn't embed into the cylinder at all it actually gets attached or adhered to the cylinder face, the plating face. So when we talk about the nickel silicon carbide being harder than steel, it physically, if you do a hardness test, it, it beats steel. I don't know what it would compare to the next level up, but um, you know, when, when I see stuff that's blown apart or blown up or whatever, typically a bearing comes apart and it gets adhered to the cylinder wall itself. But if you cross dissect that, that metal that's stuck to the plating, um, that's exactly what's going on. It, you'll see the metal, you'll see the plating, then you'll see the aluminum cylinder behind it. It doesn't penetrate or permeate the plating typically. Yeah, if you, you take a I mean? cylinder apart that when it, where a piston has really uh, gotten stuck in there or where you have, God forbid, you have the, the slightest uh, absence of oil, it, it's amazing how fast. You know, people don't understand, I think, um, from a nuanced um, viewpoint, the average person, because I think people think that they could just buy a big bore kit and put it in, and, and you can, and I don't want to discourage anybody from working on their own motorcycle, but what I do want to encourage is that people understand that as the uh, the level of, of quality componentry goes up, 
then the absolute level of attention to detail needs to go up as well, right? And so you need to make sure that you're properly lubricating things, that you're properly measuring things, and that you're properly pairing parts together. Like you said, the ring package, Melissa, you want to make sure you're using the right ring package for a given cylinder surface because it's 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 absolutely critical for the longevity of the part. And I, I always talk to people, and I want to talk to you about this a little bit, a little bit further into the conversation, but breaking in a motor is so critical. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you compare it to um, a child, right? The first year of a child's life is, is where they, they learn the most, where the neuroplasty in the brain is really taken in a lot of, a lot of information, even though it can't, can't regurgitate it yet. That, that, Putting something together properly and choosing all those components on the front side and breaking it in properly is critical to how long it'll last. And if you do it correctly, it'll last forever. Like a Rolex watch, you can buy a Rolex watch that's 60 years old and it, it still keeps time. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the quality. It's all about also, you know, like you said, matching up the parts, making sure they all fit properly and everything, but cleaning them. And a lot of people, just because they think the like the piston pin comes in a plastic encased package, they think that it's you know like surgical steel, and it's not. No. Um, that thing was that thing was put in like oil and then put in a bag so it wouldn't rust, but it came straight out of the machine. And that oil that's so that on that I want to I want to stop there because the oil that comes on that piston pin is not oil that's designed to be in an engine to lubricate it. That is a thick oil that's to prevent it from rusting in the package. Yeah. <laughs> it's a any, rust inhibitor. Yeah. And in any, and any, you know, if anybody's ever seen in, in the proof of this is in powder coating, UV rays will rust steel even under, even yeah. when it's, when it's encapsulated in a clear coat, if you've ever clear coated anything like a frame or, you know, something like that, that has some, some, uh, exposed metal, the UV will rust it from the inside out. It, it's a, it's a carbon based piece. It's, it's actually organic and those molecules move around and those they're excitable. And so everything that's inside the engine, that's one of the things I get so excited talking to people who actually, know way more than I do and you guys both do than engines and and I like talking about things like this because it's it's so critical to understand you know when people come into my motorcycle shop and they're like well you know my favorite is and I heard it today well you know I do I do most of the work on my own motor motorcycle myself and I can do it I just don't have the time and I'm like listen man you don't have the time you don't have the tools and you don't have you don't have the real technical like the nuanced you know high level technical skill to, to do it, nor do you have the resources, yeah. you know? Right. Well, I always use an example of file fitting rings. You know, you buy a twenty nine ninety five file fit tool and you file fit your rings, but you deburr them after you file fit them. Yes, you absolutely, you clean, yeah, you have to have a small little people, uh, jeweler's file to get those, yeah, get the burrs exactly. off. Mm -hmm. And then, then you wash it and then you oil it. And you make sure that that cloth that you it comes clean before you ever put it on a bike. But you would be not believe how many people do not know to deburr the end of a piston ring after they've cut it. They My just think, oh well, I mean, it's done, and they don't wipe it off. They and now they've got grit on it and dirt and you know uh, rust inhibitor oil on it. It's sticky and and it's amazing when you talk to people and you're like, did you clean your rings? They're like. 
they came in a clear package and you're like, oh, well, we get it. Acetone. <laughs> My so favorite. Then, is- you know, this is also, this is also a common thing too. You know, they'll take that engine apart. Oh, it's, I just want to inspect it. And I see all these stars on the cylinder walls. And typically that's like probably that dirt that they reassemble that engine with in the beginning and then started up and that dirt went somewhere and stuck to your cylinder wall. And now it's caused a little, uh, shadow. You know what I mean? My other favorite and is a guy it, that it, that is built has a red shop towel in an engine room. Oh, <laughs> oh good. Did, Lots of lint. Did, yeah. Does everybody know what? Why there are red shop towels? They used to be white, white. and they and they dye them red the first time they, they wash the them. Stains out of them. Yep. The first time they wash them. Yep. Absolutely. So that people know they're a used they're a used towel and not a brand new clean towel. I learned that from. Uh, cent- uh, I was a your Cintas guy came by. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you know we have it. We have a clean room here at Cycle Stop USA that has its all of its own tools, all of its own supplies, all of its own everything, and, and we use um, you know Scott lint free, you know like linen, like disposable linen towels, and lots of acetone, lots of uh, lots of lacquer thinner. You know, there's like a different there's a different yeah. thing, right? I mean. That's the levels of, of, of care and concern that you want to see at a doctor's office. Why wouldn't you want to, exactly. why wouldn't you respect that in a motorcycle shop? And, you know, we, you guys, you guys owned your own motorcycle shop. And I definitely want to talk about that because you guys took a giant leap of faith, leaving something that you had built together as a family. And you, you took a, took a shot on running, uh, you know, running revolution because for all intents and purposes, you guys are the face of revolution performance and you do a great job at it. Because like I said, I just assumed that that was your enterprise. Talk a little bit about having a motorcycle shop. And then how did the conversation go? Cause I'm sure there was a conversation where you guys were presented with an opportunity and here you are sitting across the counter or the, the kitchen table from each other having a cup of coffee or a beer or a soda and, and, and trying to read each other's mind. Nothing like that. No, <laughs> no, uh, no. I said, don't buy it. He bought it anyways. And end of story. <laughs> so, well, that was the beginning of the bike shop. That was but, the beginning yeah. of the bike shop. I'm talking about when you guys decided to leave the bike shop and get into, oh. get into the, what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so let me take this for a minute. So, um, you know, we were running the, the shop and stuff, and we had paired up with Revolution Performance because I had a soft tail that I was building for one of my customers, and I'd used some other cylinders. And I started the bike when we ran about 50 miles and seized the cylinder. So they're, you know, they're telling me, oh, you put the pistons in too tight, this and that. So this went on. I blew up three engines straight away. Um, so I had met Revolution at one of the shows, I believe, in Cincinnati. I told them what was going on, and they're like, well, you know, we do bottom ends, and we can fix your problem, and I've got some cylinders for it. Instead of being a 106, we'll make it a 109. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to just do business with anybody. So I took a drive up there and took my customer with me, and we took a tour of the plant and whatever, and <clears throat> decided to start doing business with them. Um, the ironic thing, I think that was like in 2009, and that engine's still together today. It's still running. But um, – you know, from that point on, we started doing business with Revolution, and they were doing all of our bottom end work at that point and doing our head packages, and we were buying their cylinders. So, you know, we were just putting stuff together in our shop and, and building bikes and, you know, doing the normal thing like you're doing. And we just got a relationship with them over time because all at that time, all the big shows were in Indianapolis. So, you know, we would see them in Cincinnati. We would see them in Indianapolis. We'd 
started going to dinner with them and just, you know, meeting them out and about. And, you know, every time they came to town, they gave us a call. So, um, I don't know, several years later, um, we just started having conversations and, and it led to uh, one night after PRI, um, you know, I'm sitting at, at I think it was Ike, uh, not Ike, um, was, was the Harry and Izzy, Harry and Izzy Steakhouse, you know, and having a steak with Chris and a couple of other guys from the shop. And, um, you know, I think it was like an eight hour interview and I wasn't expecting that. So, you know, we, it took us a long time to think about this. It took us about eight months to decide that we were going to take the plunge, shut the shop down and, and move. Um, it was a difficult thing to do and it was hard to leave our family and our friends and everything that we knew for 48 years, you know, sure. our life. That's, that's where we grew up. So it was, I, I think ultimately, you know, I had aspirations to do more than just have a, a small shop and do what I was doing, dyno tuning and all that, building bikes and to have a different platform where I could actually start developing things. And, you know, it definitely put us, instead of a regional stage, it definitely took us to national and now, you know, international stage because we do work in Europe and Australia and Canada. And so it's, um, it's way bigger than I ever expected it to be. And it's much different than I expected it to be too. When Melissa and I got there, you know, we were, she was going to do sales and I was going to do dyno tuning and, and some R and D work, you know, and some engine building. And as we got in there, you know, when you've been an entrepreneur for 25 years, we had three separate businesses over 25 years, her and I, um, you don't just go and be an employee, you know? Right. And so of course, everything that we did from that point on, and we treated it like it was our own because that's all that we knew. And, you know, when you first met me, you thought that I was the entrepreneur behind revolution. And I said, no, I'm not. I told you my story. And he was like, Oh, you're not an entrepreneur anymore. You're an entrepreneur. Yes. And I said, well, I never thought about it that way, but yeah. And, you know, fortunately, Chris Hackle, our owner, he, he and I, we just had this conversation. He's like, I don't care that people think you're the owner. He says, I'm proud of that because it means that you're taking ownership in what you're doing and you're proud of the company and, and you're representing me well, you know? So that's a very long sided view of that. And that, that's a very healthy view of viewpoint for him to have on that and understanding how critical it is to not be people poor and how critical it is to have people in your organization that have some ownership of at least the part of the job that they do, because that's what we really want. You were for 25 years, you guys had three different businesses. I think you realize the value of having somebody inside your organization that understands what you're your goal is if you make room for them to have their own goals met as well that's a really really healthy relationship yeah i I think the hard yeah and i think the hardest thing for us is that we had a great employee at our shop and um he was he was an ownership employee um he took ownership in everything that he did and i think leaving our shop that was the biggest um, uh, struggle for us was to leave him behind. He mm-hmm. always has a job with us. He knows that at any time, if he wants to come to Wisconsin, we, we, we see him two or three times a year. And every year we're like, whenever you're ready, we'll make room because he's one of those employees that you'll never forget that always represented the company. Well, always took ownership in the company and, um, I, when I became an employee after 25 years, 
I wanted to emulate him in a lot of ways because um, I never had to worry that he would ever make our company look bad. And I don't want to make revolution look bad. So I, you know, I do, you know, I've learned from past employees how to try to be a good employee. Yeah. I think, Um, I think one (laughs) of the things that people assume uh, especially when they talk to people like us that have been entrepreneurs for uh, a good good portion of our lives that we're, we're not employable, um, we're difficult to work with, uh, we're too strong-minded, we're too strong-willed, but those are all tools that we use if properly managed and if properly empowered and if properly guided and given the tools that we need to do, we can do some amazing things and be amazing in, uh, employees inside another person's organization if we can put aside um, some of the some of the upper echelon things that have to happen. Do you guys have the ability, and, and you don't have to answer this, but I, I want to put it out there to find out. Do you guys have the ability to drive um, the, to drive the, the direction of revolution? Or at this point, are you guys inundated with work to the point where you're not that you're stifled, but that where you're not able to be innovative because you were, you know, filling orders and, 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 you know, not having time for product development. Where does the product development part come from? Well, we just had, it's funny. We just had a meeting about this two days ago. Um, so, you know, the business has been growing and when we got there, there were some issues going on and some things that just hadn't been handled properly in about a 10 year span, you know? Right. And, you know, I just thought I was going to come in and start, you know, building stuff right away. And um, they asked me to look at all the warranty stuff. And that put me into another project that made me redevelop all the pistons and look at our cylinder sizings and all that stuff differently to the piston. And we did ring testing and did all kinds of things to make the product better. So that project itself took about three years to redevelop all the products um, that we already had. And at the same time, work on an M8 product that were just coming out. And, you know, in that time, we've also developed some products for Indian, um, the Scout and now the Challenger. We've got a kit that we're working on for the Chieftains. Um, we do have a kit for FTR. So, you know, I mean, all these things have been going on, but we've also been redeveloping everything and trying to get it set to where we can now move the business in a bigger direction. You know what I mean? Yeah. And during that time as well, we've had the opportunity to put more people in place and build the backbone structure of the company better as well. And that hasn't just happened with revolution. It's also happened with millennium and just finding the right pieces to make the business grow. Um, You know, I think a lot of times in a small company, we all, you know, we've got this guy and he's a great guy and he's super at this job. And now we've made him the lead of that department, but he might not necessarily be a leader to the point he can lead other people. Right. He may be the best one in the department, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily a leader. You know what I mean? Um, And we place those people in those positions sometimes out of necessity. And, you know, I think that kind of happened with, revolution and, and millennium there for a while. And some of those people are still there and they've actually gotten training and they've become better leaders. And some people said, man, I don't want to be in this position anymore. And we found the right person to fit that spot, you know? Um, so the main thing that Chris wants to do, and I want to do it as well, 
is to develop that the people so that they stay there because you want that knowledge to stay and fit them in the right spot. And where we need help, we got to search, search those people and source them in other areas to bring them in so that you can build the backbone of the business even better and start growing it and taking it in a different direction. So, you know, I think now it's taken six years to get it to that point, but yeah, it's finally to the point where we can start moving a little bit. And, um, you know, we got our supply chain better. We moved our cylinders back to the United States. Um, there for a while, we were going overseas, trying to cut costs in a certain era of time. And it worked for a while, but um, it was just too hard to deal with those people overseas. They were just, you know, shipping and all that stuff. And then COVID came about. And fortunately for us, we were already making that move before COVID. So a lot of companies were having a hard time getting products into the United States. And fortunately for us, we were already working with a casting house in Wisconsin. So it really transitioned us quickly to them. And they're just right down the road from us. So now we've got cylinders being made 45 minutes from our plant, you know? Yeah. Let me oh, let me it, ask you about this. So from a manufacturing standpoint, since you brought this up, this is something that, you know, <clears throat> I've struggled with this my entire career because there was for... Uh, early on in my career, there was the buy American or die, right? There was a lot of people in the chopper industry that were absolutely hardcore, you know, very, very rigid in, in their their viewpoint. Uh, there's several companies that, that you know, that have made um, a good deal of the fiber of their marketing and a good deal of the fiber of their customer base has been based on the fact that they are made here in the United States. And there's several companies that do that, but there, as we peel back the layers of an onion, we find out that there's several companies that maybe be, uh, are misrepresenting that to some degree. And I don't want to name any names because that's not what's important. What is important is how difficult is it to manufacture things from, from cradle to grave using raw materials from the United States. Can you can you kind of shed some light on that a little bit? Because if, if you've just gone through this just prior to COVID and through COVID, I think you've probably done it in the most difficult time in, in the modern history. And even though it's a smaller company and it's, I know it's motorcycle cylinders, it's not, we're not, you know, we're not curing cancer, but let's talk about how difficult that can be. Because I imagine it is. Well, I, I, I guess I could probably walk through a lot of it because I've dealt with more directly with um, the casting house um, where Rodney deals with the piston manufacturers. Okay. Uh, we both deal, we both deal with medic and our gaskets. Um, the issue with overseas is, um, you know, I'm going to throw it out there everybody's going overseas for something. Sure. Um, even, even if it says made in the USA, it's really, really hard to find 100% made in the USA. Um, I can tell you that until COVID hit and our cylinders came back to the United States, you know, our castings were made overseas. But once we received that raw casting, it never left our building until it was shipped as a completed project. But if you don't have someone in place sitting overseas with an office watching those plants, um, quality control is a huge issue and you have big inconsistencies. Um, we're very proud to say that we're made in the USA minus one, one item. One item. 
and that is the ring packages that we use on our pistons. And we've gone back to Hastings. They're made in Japan. And I have to, you know. Isn't Japan a better just, partner, though? I mean, to be fair, just to jump in, not to interrupt you, but there's there's right. levels, right? There's Japan Correct. is probably the best partner that we have in Asia. The next best would be Taiwan. And then you have, uh, right. then you have South Korea. And then you have China. It, it, and then, you know, in, in Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia, all those would be sub, what I would consider subpar. I mean, Melissa, isn't it fair to say there's some things like I don't care that a Dixon flannel is made in China. I really don't. You know, a Duluth, a Duluth uh, company flannels made in the States. We know that the Dixon flannels. I don't have a problem with them being made in China because it's a flannel shirt. My my tennis right. shoes, they can be made in, you know, I like Vans. They're made in China. I, I'm not Steve Van Doren. I didn't sell my likeness in, in, in my intellectual property to VF Imageware, who is the largest clothing manufacturer in the world, right? But there's some things that it's okay that they're made over there, but there's some things that are absolutely, absolutely not. And, and what you're getting at is like, there's levels, right? Japan is a pretty favorable partner in, in the grand scheme of things. Well, not to mention, you know, the reason why all those rings are made in Japan, the metal that they use is a better quality metal than we can have uh, produced here in the United States. It's just the, the purity of the product that's being used. So, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with Japan either. That's, you know. That's well, that's why I want to have an honest conversation. You know, Italian leather is better for leather jackets than American leather because they don't have barbed wire. I mean, there's, there right. is that, you know, cheese, yeah. cheese is better. And if you've ever been to Italy, Italian cheese is fucking amazing, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? The, there, but there's things like that, that, that are, that, that are said, I'm, I'm not a buy America or die guy, but I'm, I'm cautious of Walmart. You know what I mean? And absolutely, you know, we want to have a great product out there, and we're proud that you know now we have stuff that we can control. We know that you know with our partners that are casting the, the cylinders for us, we spec the cylinder and what product we wanted to use for aluminum, and that's what we get. And when you're overseas, you can spec it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're going to get. Right. It might be something close, but it's not always perfect, you know. And that's the problem that I have with overseas, um, and. Not with China. Uh, I mean, not with uh, Japan, not with Taiwan. Those guys pretty well spec and keep their tight, tight tolerances. It's the other ones that don't. And, you know, so that's why I'm proud that we're back in the United States, at least with the cylinders. And now we can control it because it's 45 minutes from our doorstep. You know what I mean? Right. Um, which is huge. But what so, are some of the barriers, though, Rodney? What are some of the barriers to entry on that? Like, uh, to explain to people why it's so critical. I mean, it's easy to say, well, the specifications are not up to a par. The the materials are not up to par. But be specific of where that impacts. If you're if you've got a cylinder that's not properly, you know, that's that, that doesn't have the right. If the front cylinder and rear rear cylinder are not the, of the same ilk, they're going to move around, right? You're going to have distortion. You're going to have ring seal problems. You're going to have piston sticking problems. You're not going to be able to accurately measure just because you measure the piston before it goes together. Once everything heats up, we know metal expands, right? So it's arguable that the cylinder is going to get a little bigger, but so is the piston. But we want that to occur at the correct rate, right? Yeah, I mean, aluminum is not just one product. It's a lot of products that make aluminum what it is. Um, there's silicone, there's magnesium, there's a lot of different compounds of steels or metals in there, alloys that create the aluminum that we use. So it's specified in a certain manner that you want to have this much aluminum and you want to have this much silicone and this much magnesium and, 
and all these things combined so that the cylinder is stable the way that you want it to be um, based on what, you know, the specs are in the, you know, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you change one of those specs by 10%, it can affect how that cylinder is going to be stable or unstable, or if it's going to be, um, you know, if it's going to grow too fast or if it's going to lose its elasticity where it might grow and never come back, you know? Um, so that's one way, but, you know, also the reason why all these companies go to China, let's take, for instance, one of our cylinders, our, our casting itself, the, the main fixture that we use, mm-hmm. um, it cost about $60,000 per fixture that for our cylinders. So that's for M8. And then there's, you know, another 60 for Evo and, and Sportster because those two cylinders are, are on the same uh, platform. And then there's another one for twin cam. Well, so, you know, $180,000 just to get the cast, uh, you know, the, the mold. basic mold made where in China they'll do it for $5,000 a piece. Jesus. So that's a huge cost to overcome. And if you don't have the pocket for that, where are you going to go? Well, I understand that. But then there's the moral, the, the moral uh, dichotomy of, you know, especially now and not to get political, but, you know, just in the last few weeks, we've seen some pretty, what I would consider morally questionable things happening uh, over there where, you know, you're finding out that they've got, you know, eight and nine year olds that are, that are building phones and sewing shoes and, and, you know, not getting into a moral dilemma. If you stay here on our shores, you're, you're not going to have to, to deal with, with those things. And, you know, that's a, that's a very, very real thing, especially from the people that are, that are actually in that mire or, or in that, in that space. Well, and I have to agree with you. Um, the last couple of weeks watching what China is going through um, I am glad we don't give them any money any longer. Um, I, you know, I morally have a problem with child labor. Sure, um, you're a China, mother. And, and, and China uses it. They also um, have slaves still. Um, they have the dirtiest air in the world. They do. Um, they, oh, they have terrible pollution over there, air pollution. Um there's just all kinds of things that um, we were fortunate enough that we have a friend, you know, from years past that's from China. And, you know, he told us what China was like and, you know, I'm glad to be gone. I'm glad to be back in the United States. I'm glad to um, employ more um, U S citizens, U S people. Um, and I hope that sometime China has better conditions for the more humane conditions and treats their people better. Um, and the more we pull out of there, you know, maybe they'll change their ways. I don't know. There's a lot of people. Yeah, there is. But I, I would, I would say that all of those things are admirable qualities to add to anything that anybody, anybody does. And, and the more conversations that we have, uh, that are, uh, meaningful about why that's important is what really is going to create some some change. Um, changing directions a little bit and going into a, a little more lighthearted stuff. You guys had your shop for twenty five years as a family owned bike business, correct? Fourteen well, years. Fourteen yeah, years. Fourteen years, and then we had two different businesses before that business. So, so you were fourteen yeah. years in the bike business. You're six years at Revolution. So you're you're two decades in. You guys are all in. You're not going anywhere. Um, 
Talk to us a little bit about, Melissa, you said you looked across at the table and you said, no, don't buy it. Ronnie, tell me, what did you buy? <laughs> what, was in, what, was in the, what was in the box when you opened that box up? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yeah, we bought something that, you know, had customers and all this. And then the guy that owned the business said, uh, you know, told all the customers, yeah, I just shut the business down. So all the customers immediately went away. They didn't even know the shop still existed. And, you know, we were And the fighting. recession hit. Yeah. Then a recession hit. So, you know, we were fighting tooth and nails just to, just to keep our, our lights on or whatever. You know what I mean? So, um, what did up. we buy? I'll tell you what we bought. We bought a dyno, okay. three motorcycle lifts, some specialty tools. Um, there was a customer base list was roughly 300 people persons on the customer list um what else did we buy a computer um a few parts some oil filters some gaskets not a whole lot of stuff on the shelves right um and then um when we closed the business down our customer base was well over four thousand um and we had six lifts um we were open six days a week um had a great following, um, and um, I learned the difference real quick between a soft tail dyna and a touring model. Because the day I started, <laughs> I didn't know the difference. <laughs> How so? So, Melissa, you know, um, I'm, I'm assuming that you are probably uh, the the more um, the less pragmatic and, and the more. Uh, traditional kind of getting into you kind of get into you, you know the nest building and in, in your 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 in this business and you're you're there for all these years 14 years developing and, and learning and and in helping kind of guide everything how hard was it to to put that all that stuff in a box and 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 close it up um it was heartbreaking and in some ways um I had customers that I loved like family. That, that, that was the hardest part of it. Um, actually closing the front doors and realizing that I didn't have to work another Saturday was, <laughs> you know, I was excited about um, that. If I wanted to clock off at five, I had that, like the phones turn off at five and nobody would know if I was still working or not. And I could leave. Right. Um, those things, those things I looked forward to, but ultimately leaving our customers was was the hardest thing in the world because we were, we were a big family and we had a big Vietnam veterans group, um, that ended up, um, becoming a little group in our shop, um, of, of, um, Vietnam vets. And then they brought in, you know, the Gulf war vets and, you know, about once a month, you'd look out back in the shop and there'd be six or eight of them with their diet Coke chain smoking, talking about the war. And they found comfort and that those are the things that I miss, you know, um, I miss, you know, um, the guys, you know, um, watching their kids graduate high school and then their son getting their first motorcycle and bringing it in for his first oil change and, you know, the weddings and, you know, the, all of those things that we got to be a part of with our customer base, that, that that's what I knew was going to be hard. And it, it's finally easier today. It's the first couple of years was rough for me because I'm very motherly. So, um, 
I and felt like all time, she says all this stuff, and now we're doing all these same things with customers and friends around the country. And um, you know, again, our 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 footprint has just changed. You know, yeah. Um, we really met you and became real good friends. I feel with you recently. Um, because of another thing that we all did together, not knowing we were going to be on the same location and, and destinations together, you know? Yeah. So. It's, it's funny how we find ourselves, um, in, in each other's spaces and, and how, you know, the, being on that high seas rally was something that I learned that there was, there was no exit, right? You could go to your stateroom, but who wants to do that? And, and you were not in these forced awkward situations, you were in these incredible opportunities to, to share because there was something about not having anywhere to go that made you let your yeah. guard down a little bit and be extremely honest when you spoke. It was, look, it, I had the best time. I, or we, not, we already booked again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was that much fun. We've told our friends, we've got friends that are booking. Um, it was one of the best, things that we've done for ourselves um, as a vacation and just the neatest people. It didn't matter who we talked to. We just had a great time. It was awesome. I think Paul knew what he was doing with all the people he invited. Yeah. He seemed to very, um, you know, Paul's very astute in, in what he does. He's not a, uh, an, you know, an incredible success for, for no reason at all. Um, but one of the things that I found on that cruise was that not only could you speak um, very open and honestly, but people listened very, I don't know what the right, right term is, but people listened very emotionally and very, you know, they wanted to hear what you had to say. And I felt like there was, you know, and I certainly hope that over the, the course of the next few years, as we see this thing kind of grow inside the industry uh, because our, our, I think our industry is lacking a, an, a fellowship opportunity that we used to have every year at Cincinnati and in the years that that, 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 that show was in Indy as well. But I, I want to know that when, that I, that I'm having the same struggles and the same successes as people that are doing, trying to do what I do as well. You follow what I mean by that? Yeah, exactly. Right. It brought us all together. It didn't matter if it was, you know, another shop or uh, another builder from across the country or a customer that just rides a custom bike or rides a regular Harley that goes to small shops. It didn't matter who was on the, on the thing. We all were on the same platform. You know what I mean? And I think the most uh, unique thing about being on a cruise is your phones don't work. Yes. And our, we weren't distracted. So when we had conversations with people, we were in that moment with everyone, you know, and the rat race was gone. Well, that, that was, sense? that's the best way to articulate what I was trying to say is that we were, it forced us to kind of, kind of level out a little bit and realize, Hey, it's okay. You, you have this minute to take, to give to somebody, to listen to what they have to say, because there's so much to learn from, from what you do and what Melissa does and what Larry Couric does and what Brian Clock does and what Paul Yaffe does to where we're on that. It was just kind of a, a, I don't know. It was the closest thing to an equality of opportunity to learn and, and be comfortable as I've ever been on. Yeah. And it didn't feel like um, I was judged 
or um, if I saw it from a different angle, um, you know, everybody, you know, everybody was like, well, think of it through this angle. And then it gives you a different perspective or a different perception of something. You're like, oh, I've never really looked at it that way. So when I came back from that cruise, I've looked at some of my marketing ideas from a different angle because of things you said. I, I looked at things Brian Clark and Vanessa said about marketing because I'm trying to understand marketing better. It's not one of my strong points. Um, but there were so many great ideas thrown around in our little powwows, you know, in the evenings. And I, you know, and then I would go sound off with Rodney and he's like, and I'm like, do you think that would really work? He goes, well, it's not going to hurt anything. We should try it. It's working for them. It might work for us. And it was so nice that people were so engaging to help you do better it, as a small business. It was. I and, think sometimes we forget that, you know, Brian Clock, you know, Brian Clock is a good case study, right? Because oh yeah. he is, I, I find him to be incredibly humble. I find him to be incredibly successful. I find him to be incredibly balanced. Uh, at the same time, I find him to be incredibly intense about things. And I think that's something that we all have in this industry is this level of intensity that when things are going really, really good, um, we even when things are going good, we forget to be thankful for them because we get to do what we truly love, what we truly love doing. And somehow we get to attach a dollar to it once in a while. And I think that people on the outside look at us and they just, they can't even fathom how great things are for us. And, and I don't take it for granted. You know, I have two signs in my office. One of them says, relax, you already have everything you need. And the other one says, remember you asked for all of this. And so even when, <laughs> even when the shit hits the fan and, and, and I, you know, I have to come in here and close the door and, and get angry and, and whatever, um, man, I would rather be doing this than, breaking bigger rocks into smaller rocks. Well, Brian Clark in a morning meeting that was, I was so excited to go to. It was the Friday heading to Sturgis after his kickoff party. It was the next morning. And he says, we all have bad days. Things don't always go right. Take a 10 minute walk, catch your breath, come back. It'll all get better. Just breathe. And I thought I'm cause I'm, I don't always breathe and I have worked really hard since then to remember, try to walk it off, just go take, take a breath, go yell someplace else, go throw a fit, you know, get it out of your system and try to start over. And, you know, it doesn't work every time, but I have really tried so hard to um, emulate what he says because he does it and it's working because he's successful and he's happy and he's happy. I, he's a great, and he's a great mentor for anybody new to this industry. Anybody. He's, he's, a, he's great a great mentor, mentor to people. Yeah. To, to people who've guys. been around, to people who've been around, you know, I <laughs> called, I called Brian when we got home and I, I thanked him for spending some time with me. Like he did. I mean, he took, uh, you know, a considerable amount of time away from what he was, you know, he was spending time with his wife and his team on, on the cruise. And I told him, I said, listen, you know, you have encouraged me to rethink some things. And, uh, you know, I want to be the kind of leader that 
people tell me that he is. And I, and I have no choice but to believe the people um, that tell me he's a good leader because I think he leads by example. Is he perfect? Absolutely not. None of us are. Um, but, man, you know, just to I, – I, I hope that people – you know, can you imagine what they're going to write on that guy's tombstone? He filled a lot of other people's buckets, and and if I can do that, that's that's really where what I want to do. That that would make me happy. And he yeah. has seen the highest highs and the lowest lows, and he every time you see him, he's still smiling. You yeah. know, and he bounces back, and he's like, "It'll all be okay." And uh, you know, and I'm thankful to know him and to have him in my court. You know. Um, and I think, uh, I think a lot of people are thankful for him because he's good for the industry. Very much, you know? very much. And I feel like that boat dissolved everyone's ego all at the same time. You know, ego can be a healthy thing and ego can be an unhealthy thing. But it, we're all on that ship going the same, you know, 24 knots across the, across the Caribbean. And uh, it slowed everybody down enough to to take in a lot of good input from people and, and meet some new people. And I'm very thankful that I got to meet both of you guys. Yeah, that, was, that was an excellent trip. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it was, you know, I think yeah. one thing that we're, I wanted to kind of touch on something that you had talked about before. And, you know, we were in um, one of the sessions that you were talking about, like it was like shop talk or something like that. And it was the, you know, how you have your customers that come into the shop and you try to educate them and become better customers and not, you know, trying to sway them our way, but to teach them some basics about their motorcycle and things that they need to look for. Right. And that's one of the things that Melissa and I did in our shop. We tried to educate our customers and make sure that they, you know, kept their tire pressures up and just the basic things, you know, to make their, their experience better. Um, so now, you know, we've, you know, we've kind of been entrepreneurs in three different businesses and then you know, the motorcycle industry is where we landed. And so now, you know, we're working with a lot of small shops and things like that. And we're able to help them realize different things in the business, you know what I mean? And how to, you know, treat their customers. And we try to educate them just like we did with our customers at our shop, you know? Um, so being able to pass that torch along and try to help everybody in the industry, that's kind of what it's all about, you know? And if you can educate somebody or help them understand something better so that they can be a better shop, that's what we really try to do. And it's just a cool thing to, to be involved in, to watch, you know, people apply some of the things that you, you know, the ideas that you give them and see what it does for them. You know, it's really a neat, neat thing to see. Yeah. What a, what a feather in the cap for uh, people, for our entire industry. When we have uh, people that think like that, that think, Hey, I'm going to make this avail this information available, open source for anybody to take that data in. And I'm going to trust that even if they want to try it themselves, I'm going to show them how to do that correctly, but I'm going to trust that they're still going to trust me, but they're going to know what yeah. I'm doing and they're going to, it's going to add value. I feel like in educating customers gives value to what you're charging them for. You know, um, I, I preach um, very much that there's only one thing you can't buy more of on Amazon and it's time. And so time is your most valuable asset. And so that's really what we sell here. Like aside from selling oil and filters and, and handlebars and that stuff, but what we really do here that makes us unique, that makes us different than Revolution, makes us different than Clockworks, makes us different than Team Dream Rides in, in Maryville, Tennessee, is we sell squares of time. 
And there's only so many squares of time that are available in a day. And so there's where the value is. And if you can give your customer enough information to make a favorable decision and build some trust with them, it's going to make that next decision that they have to do even easier. And it's going to create more value for you. And it's going to make things better for everybody because they're going to say, hey, you know what? The whole motorcycle industry isn't made up of people that are taking advantage of people. The by and large, most people in the motorcycle industry that are here for longer than, say, five or 10 years are here for the right reasons and they're doing the right things and they're giving back to the industry and they're filling other people's buckets. And if information can be free, you know, your time becomes infinitely more valuable. Right. No, I mean, absolutely. It's just, it's just the way to pass it on. You know, I mean, I, I think we're all in this industry because we started on motorcycles when we were kids. I mean, I got my first bike when I was six, you know, yeah. my first motorcycle, six years old. And I'm still on it today. And it's like, you know, it, it's just something that got in our blood and it's never left. And I think if you talk to a lot of the guys in the shops, it doesn't matter where they're at. They're all not just enthusiasts, but they've been on a motorcycle all their life, you know? And so we are pretty lucky that we get to work on our, our play toys, our, you know, our hobby. Um, it's not always the best idea for business, but, <laughs> right. you know, um, help each other out. You know, we're all, we all came from the same thing. We're not, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I've made a ton of mistakes, man. I try to learn by them, you know, and I just try to pass that information along to the next person so that they don't have to go through the same stuff I went through and so on. So I, well, this is how Melissa and I look at it, you know? And Absolutely. here's another thing. I, each customer is valuable, but that customer spends a hundred dollars with you. He's just as valuable as that customer who spent $10,000 with you. And I always try to remind people that just because they don't build some crazy expensive engine that that makes them invaluable. So they come in and, you know, they need a primary rebuild because their compensator went out. You sure will do that. Well, I thought you're just engine builders. Well, no, we're not just engine builders. That's what we specialize in. But if, you know, you live here in town and you need that taken care of, sure, we'll help you, you know. Um, and I try to tell the shop, there's shops that build engines every week. Every week I have an order in there. I have a case, a crank, a set of heads. They've got a big bore kit coming. And they're they're pumping one or two out, three out a month, some even more. But that doesn't make the customers that send me one or two cranks a year less valuable. And um, well, I always try to treat each customer, you know, like, they're the most important customer and whether they're large or small and that's all that, you know, and I think that goes a long way also. It does. And, and, you know, Melissa, I've always tried to preach this at my business that if you have to look at the economy to scale, you know, if a guy that, that, that makes $2,000 a month and spends $800 with you is spending 20% of what he, what his income is, that's far different than a guy who makes $10,000 a month and spends $800 with you. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's correct. The economy to scale. So when you, when you factor that factor that in, um, it makes the, the smaller client infinitely more valuable, not more so than somebody who spends the same amount of money that makes more. I'm not valuing people based on that. But what I'm saying is think of the swing that that guy has to have that's on that fixed income. When they come into your shop and they grace, you know, they, they, they come through and 
you know, maybe, you know, they know they come in 10 times to spend $800 and the other guy comes in one time and drops 800. Um, you got to treat it with kid gloves and you've got to be very mindful of what that means to them. It means a lot to them if they're going to spend 20% of their income with you in one month. Well, exactly. A, a set of tires to one guy, it's no big deal. If he needs them, he calls up, sets an appointment, gets a new set of tires. But to another guy, he puts it in his budget. He's like, I'm going to need a new mm-hmm. tire soon. What's that going to cost me? Okay, well, um, I'm going to have to put that in my budget, and I'll see you in eight weeks. And yep. he comes in in eight weeks, and he's got his estimate, and he schedules his appointment. And oftentimes, that person pays up front because it's it, he's got it today. And that guy is just as great as the guy who calls and says, Hey, I need a new set of tires. When's your next appointment? Exactly. And doesn't ask for price, you know? So, um, I always, that's, you know, that was one thing that, um, I learned early on in my sales career that never judge a book by its cover and always treat everyone the same, you know, whether they're spending a lot of money or a little money, each one of I'll, a hundred small purchases a day, you know, I'll take that any day over one big purchase. Cause if you're waiting for the one big purchase every day, it might not come. Well, I just, so. let me jump in on that because Melissa, something profound happened to me very early on. Now I'm, my father's not with us anymore, but my, I started this company December 3rd of 2000. Well, I started my motorcycle career. I actually started a different company that's still in business in Michigan. I'm proud to say, but we moved down here in 2010, my dad and I, but we started the business in, in 2003 and, you know, I had, I had previously, I've, I've always been a salesperson and, and prior to being into motorcycles, I was into the hot rods and muscle cars. And so I cut my teeth learning how to sell at the retail counter of, of Ram chargers and super shops. And, um, my dad and I, I convinced my dad, you know, he got laid off every winter. He worked for a commercial roofing company. I convinced him to open the motorcycle shop that he had always wanted to have my whole life. And so we started out and we're doing things. And back then there weren't prices in the drag book. And we sit down and we figure things out, yada, yada. We, we make an order. Um, a guy comes into our shop and we learned very early on that not having a service department was going to be a problem. A guy comes in, orders, um, PM wheels, PM brakes, rotors, pulley, Metzler tires, all in one fell swoop. And it was like back then, I think it was 5,500 bucks in 03. And the guy leaves and my dad goes, what did that guy just buy? And I told my dad he bought wheels, tires, brake calipers, rotors, and a pulley. And he was like, it was $5,400. And my dad, I go, yeah. And my dad sat down in the corner and he looked at me as serious as he could be. And he says, I can't do this. I said, you can't do what? He says, I can't do this. I, I cannot, I physically cannot do this. I would never spend that kind of money on something like that. I, he, I, he couldn't wrap his head around it. I said, dad, let me tell you the first rule of sales. The number one rule of sales is know your inventory. The number two rule of sales is it's not your money. It's never your money. Even when it goes in the cash register, it's not your money. That money belongs to your company. So there's this thing that has to happen where you have to disconnect yourself and you have to understand that the the, the number one most important thing that a salesperson can do is listen. And the, the customer will tell you how much they want to spend, what they really want, what they think they want, what their friends have, you know? So there's these constructs that happen and learn, but what you were talking about is so profound because every customer is valuable. 
every customer is valuable. Every dollar is, is important. We are, we are delivering a bike this week that got completed on an estimate we did in 2019. 2019. He calls, I'm ready. I'm like, okay. He goes, you did an estimate for me. Here's the number. I pulled it up. I'm like, that's from 2019. He goes, I'm sure there's some price increases. I'm comfortable with that. When can I schedule? Now, 2019, he called a half a dozen times after 2019, you know, and saying, asking a few more questions. You may not get the sale the day you talk. No. Don't ever think it may not come around. And I asked him, I'm like, so what took you so long? He goes, oh, I just didn't have time to get it in my schedule. He's like, I got busy doing this and busy doing that. And he's like, but I never forgot how nice you guys were and knew I wanted to do it. It took three years for him to, you know, get up there and get it done. But it was kindness. Um, it was still answering questions, you know, and, um, you know, and he just, and that's, and he says, I looked at other shops. He goes, but you guys were the, you guys were so nice. Yeah. He bought you. He bought you. Correct. Exactly. He, he he bought bought, into you. Right. And that's, you know, and I, I, I always, I send an estimate out on a Tuesday, you know, I don't expect to see it on Thursday, you know, and sometimes you'll do an estimate in July and you get it in November, but you know, you, it's a win, you know, and, um, and I'm just thankful for all of them. So I, but I always just think kindness, you know, goes a, a long way. And I can yeah. only imagine your debt. I would have been so shocked too. The first time I sold yeah. $5,500 oh. worth of wheels. <laughs> yeah. Well, life's a garden. You got to dig it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember the first time I sold a set of wheels like that. And I was like, these people are stupid. <laughs> you know what I'm, like? <laughs> I'm like, do you know what I could do with $5,000? You know, but over time you realize it made them happy and watching them drive away with that smile. And, you know, um, that's what it's all about. And now that she's had bikes with custom wheels, she's like, I just can't deal with these stock wheels anymore. Right. Yeah. Not know. that way. Um, she is so wrong. <laughs> yeah. oh. Rodney. Okay. Well, maybe, it's, maybe it's me. I don't know. Yeah. Rodney, I wanted yeah. to say something you, you had mentioned a little bit earlier and, and the, 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 the thought came into my head and, and it, and it, and it left as quick as it came in. And I'll, I'll leave you both with this cause I've taken up a lot of your time, but I could quit doing this for a living tomorrow. If, if all this fell apart, I could quit doing this tomorrow, but I could never quit the people that I know in this business. I could never quit them. You know, I've met so many people like you and Melissa and Brian and Vanessa, and even people that, you know, are no longer in my circle that I still, I got a text from Darren Williams today, who's a painter I haven't worked with in, in almost 10 years that I just love him to death because of the time that we spent together back when we were both getting into this business and we're walking down the street in, in Daytona in 2005, we didn't have trailers. We didn't have big trucks. We didn't have big shops. And just remembering those days are, are something that I will always cherish forever. So I'm very appreciative to have met you guys on the high seas rally. And, and I'm hoping that we'll see each other many, many, many more times before then. But I, I truly, I appreciate it very much. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you and every, all the new people. And I look forward to seeing everybody again soon. Um, Will you be in Louisville? 
Um, I'm not, I have never been to, my parents used to go to NVP every year right after Sturgis and I have not been to an NVP and I'm, I'm kind of thinking that I need to find a way to get to one of them and, and Louisville would be the one that makes the most sense. So I have to look and see, I can't commit just yet. I still have a trip to Texas. I've got to go and wire a motorcycle for Xavier. So I still have that on, the, oh. on my, on my docket. <laughs> well, no. the, the neat thing about you know as a, a shop um and i try to convince all the shops to go and it's not because you know it's a drag event um it's not because you get a, a discount during that week that it happens and all that stuff that's not it it's all the connections that you make while you're there sure and everybody in the industry that's anybody is at a drag nvp event yep and so nvp stands for national vendor products so Everybody that's in any industry of this motorcycle world is there because all the big ones are all with drag and parts unlimited. So um, it's a unique experience and stuff for a shop person. It's, it's for shops only. Um, but man, what a neat experience, man. You get to meet so many cool people and you've seen the products in a magazine or whatever. And now you get to see the people that actually made the product or designed the product or whatever, you know what I mean? And, and, um, that's, you know, we went to all those things because that's where we got our best education about all the parts that we were using in our shop, you know? Yeah. And, and I, awesome. I, mi I miss Cincinnati terribly. I miss yeah, it. So terribly. Oh, that was such a great show. Yeah. I wish and there was a way nobody, to put that, put that smoke back in the bottle. And nobody knew my name, but every year I showed up, they'd be like crazy redheads back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's well, I, and it was really, I was trying to learn because I knew nothing. And if it wasn't for Cincinnati and or Cincinnati B twin expo, I wouldn't have learned what I know today. I spent hours with those companies learning every type of product made you know, and what the importance was. And, you know, I, I tell everybody, I am so thankful for all you, all those manufacturers that spent, 10 years teaching me, you know, um, and made me, um, you know, be able to talk with education and confidence, you know. Um, but yes, if anybody could get a V Twin Expo back up and running, I would greatly appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I used to get in trouble for so, going every year because my mom insisted that everybody go to at least one, uh, one technical training thing and I would never go. She would always schedule me and I would never go and I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that was that was back in those days try to get john jessup to start the v twin expo again well we're working he and i are working on some things i've had an i've had an event down here uh i've had an event down here for uh the last three years called the central florida wheels of steel it's an indoor motorcycle show that we do here uh generally in the winter time and we 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 have kind of have it on the back burner right now uh, just because of everything else we have going on. But uh, I want to get that thing fired back up. And we've, we've actually looked at doing something and making it, you know, trying to grow it in that space. There's an auditorium there that um, I think would lend itself very well to, and it's just getting a matter of, uh, it's just a matter of getting some buy-in from, from the manufacturers in the V twin industry. But I, I, I think there's a potential for it. It's just going to take the right, right group of people and the, and the right timing. So. Perfect. Um, timing is everything. Yes, sir. Well, listen, I'm going to leave you with man. this, man. I really appreciate all the time that you guys had, that you shared with us. Um, and yeah, uh, it was our pleasure. I mean, thank you so much for asking us to, to join you on the podcast. And 
whenever you need an honor anything let us know well the honor is all mine yeah. and i definitely appreciate it very much and uh i'm looking forward i've got a couple sets of heads i've got a set of heads that are there right now i've got a set of heads that are heading your way there very soon and uh i'm looking forward to a prosperous 2023 with lots of uh lots of dealings with you guys and like i said i'd like to get some more facetime you guys sure. don't come to daytona do you yeah yeah do you bike week okay bike well week. if you're going to be yeah, in bike week then we're going to have to spend some where do you guys set up at at bike week we're nomads so okay. we're all over the place perfect um, that's even better i do the hardcore i do the hardcore show um with john o'brien good friend um, of mine the, the performance the performance um bike show yep i'm emceeing that show with him this summer. year yeah so we do that with him and then um we're involved with king of the baggers so on the weekend of the races, we'll be at the at the racetrack. So, yeah, we're all over the place. Good. Maybe we, we'll even stop in at your shop. I would love to have you here, but even more so than that, I, I, we got to go to Giuseppe's. Got to have some food That's over awesome to me. Have you ever been there? I'm ready. No, but I've heard about it. I'm oh ready. yeah. Well, we we find ourselves there many many times. So uh, we're definitely gonna we're definitely gonna catch up and. Uh, I'll get you guys. Uh, we'll we'll have a good time. So, if I don't see you between now and then, have a great Christmas. Thank you so very much. I had such an amazing time hanging out with you guys on the High Seas Rally. I'm really looking forward to that well, next year too. And we had, I think, we just had a riot. Yeah. We made some great friends. Yes, we did. It was awesome. And I will uh, talk to you in the next week or so. And um, I will, if you need anything, call me. I guess. All right. Thank you very good. Thank you very much, guys. Get some rest. Have a good night. Thank you, Jason. All right, guys. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.